0: Wild Precious Life is brought to you by Books or Magic, a family-owned, independent bookstore in Brooklyn, New York, committed to being a welcoming, friendly, and inclusive space for all people. We believe that books are indeed magic, and that literature is one of the best ways to create empathy, transportation, and transformation. Stop by or shop online at booksormagic.net. And we're brought to you by Max Bax, a proud Cleveland indie bookstore with three floors for browsing, great online service, and chocolate milkshakes right next door. Find your next great read and shop online at maxbax.com. Do any of you guys have that fantasy? Maybe you're on vacation at the beach or in the mountains, and you think to yourself, What if I stayed? Or maybe you're daydreaming about Tokyo or Paris or Rio de Janeiro. You're on this vacation in your mind and wondering, what if I actually lived there? In one of my escape regular life daydreams, I live in an apartment in Tuscany. I picture myself riding a blue bicycle along the riverbank and buying fresh flowers and bread. I imagine starting my writing day with a steaming mug of strong coffee as I overlook the rooftops of Florence. But then reality starts to trickle in. Where are my kids in this scenario? And my dog? What am I doing for money? And is there room in that apartment for my daughter's entire snow globe collection? And, and, and eventually the mundane details completely dissolve my fantasy. However, the characters in Gene Kwok's books actually make that leap. For some, they emigrate to America out of necessity, fleeing an abusive marriage or a tyrannical government. For all, they leave one country for another in search of a better life for themselves or their children. But rarely do they find it completely. Instead, there are barriers, some of the same ones we all face. Where to work, what to eat, how to afford rent, but these problems are magnified tenfold by divisions of culture, gender, and language. We may love to romanticize the idea of living in a foreign land, but few, if any of us, understand the poverty, discrimination, and utter exhaustion that immigrants experience in our own country, unless they are lucky enough to have a major support network. Jean Kwok, however, understands this really well. Jean immigrated from Hong Kong to Brooklyn when she was five and worked in a Chinatown clothing factory for much of her childhood while living in an unheated, roach-infested apartment. Later, in between an undergraduate degree at Harvard and an MFA in fiction at Columbia, Jean worked for three years as a professional ballroom dancer. Jean Kwok is the award-winning New York Times and international best-selling author of Searching for Sylvie Lee, Girl in Translation, and Mambo in Chinatown. Her work has been published in 20 countries and taught in universities, colleges, and high schools around the world. Her newest book is The Leftover Woman, and it's out now. Jean is trilingual, fluent in Dutch, Chinese, and English. She divides her time between the Netherlands and New York City. Jean Kwok, welcome to Wild Precious Life. I'm so happy to be here, anne So you won't remember me. Um, I met you at AWP, this writing conference for folks who've never been. It was back when the world was just tiptoeing open. You were on this fantastic panel with Angie Kim, the author of Miracle Creek, and Rebecca Mackay, who's wrote several books. She's, She's been here as well. And you were talking about point of view and like how you get into the heads of your characters and finding your way in and out of how to tell a story from multiple points of view. So when I heard you were coming out with The Leftover Woman, your newest book, I knew we had to talk to you. So thank you for making time.
1: Of course. And I'm glad that we have a little reunion after our moment at AWP.
0: Absolutely. So I know you as the author of four books, and even an Agatha Christie, Miss Marple that I've read. So I I know um, that you've written about the immigrant experience, race, and culture in America, um, parents sacrificing for their children. But some of our guests might not have had the pleasure of
1: knowing you. So Jean Kwok, would you tell us some of your story? So I am a first-generation immigrant, and I was born in Hong Kong. Uh, We moved to the U.S. when I was five years old, And we were incredibly poor, so incredibly working class poor. And um, I worked in a Chinatown clothing factory from the time I was five years old with my parents and my brothers in New York City. We lived in an apartment that was so run down uh, that it was literally falling apart around us and was unheated. Like it didn't have a working heating system. Um, So it was incredibly cold. In the winters, uh, I did very badly at school because I didn't speak any English uh, for a while. But then I learned English. I started doing better. And well, to make a long story short, I wound up going to Harvard. Um, I went in as a physics major because I was like, I'm going to get out of that factory. I'm going to get a real job. Um, That was kind of my only goal, even though I loved books and had read like every book in my public library in the children's section. But um, after getting to uh, college, I just kind of realized that nobody was going to make me go back to the factory and that I could do what I really love to do, which was to become a writer. Um, so that started my writing journey. And now here we are, indeed, four books later. My first book was Girl Translation, which was very much based on my Oh, well, they're all pretty based on my own life. But Go On Translation is about a smart girl who lives in an apartment just like mine and works in a factory just like mine um, and mm-hmm. grows up and has to, you know, choose between two boys. I mean, she's got a double life because she's going to this exclusive private school during the day and um, it's a factory worker by night, falls in love with a boy from each environment, and in the end has to choose not only who she wants to be with, but who she wants to be. Second book is Mambo in Chinatown. Third book is Searching for Sylvie Lee, which was a read with Jenna Pick. And now we have The Leftover Woman, which is coming out in October on October 10th.
0: So you've written these novels about being an immigrant child working in a factory and and, uh, being a ballroom dance instructor. And I mean, and God forbid about searching for a missing sibling, so much of your writing in fiction is drawn from these really difficult firsthand personal experiences. I guess my question is, why did you choose to novelize those truths? Why didn't you
1: write memoir? You know, I've been asked it a lot. I think it's an excellent question. And I mean, I have thought about writing a memoir. I've been asked to write a memoir. But I, are there are a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, I think that when you write a memoir, you can't be as free, obviously, as when you write a novel, right? It's you are, you know, you do want to be more or less factually accurate. Sometimes the truth of an experience isn't what actually happened Sometimes the truth of our emotional life is how we experienced it, how it really was. And sometimes you have to to recreate that feeling in your reader. You have to change events around or change voices around to show them how, how it actually felt to be in that position to be like that. I think, you know, the other thing is that sometimes it's too difficult to write about. Like searching for Sylvie Lee, like you said, is about searching for a lost sibling. You know, the book is, uh, the novel is about two sisters and what happens when the dazzling, older, brilliant, beautiful sister, Sylvie, disappears while on a trip to the Netherlands and her younger, stuttering, shy sister, Amy, has to do her best to figure out what happened to her brilliant older sister. Um, And in real life, you know, my brother disappeared, my brilliant older brother disappeared. And I was kind of, yeah, thank you. I was the kind of awkward um, black sheep of the family who had to pull myself together and try to figure out what had happened to him. And when I tried to write that book, even as a novel, but, um, you know, about a brother who had disappeared, I found it impossible to write just because it was so painful and the gravitational force of the real events was so powerful that it was hard to shape it. And it doesn't replicate what happened in real life, but it does have a kind of emotional core that is true.
0: Uh, first off, that, that's heartbreaking about your brother, and I was so sorry when I heard you talk about that book, Losing Him. But you're, you're right about that emotional distance and the way that you get to the heartbeat of that story. I'm not giving anything away by saying that in searching for Sylvie Lee, a, a sister is searching for her sister Sylvie and, and desperate to find her and afraid and hopeful all at once. And you definitely captured the emotional experience there. And um, I'm sorry that you had that tragedy, but I was grateful that you, you shared how a family finds their way through that in that novel. But so then this this latest one, um, the Leftover Woman, which is brand new now, when folks are hearing it, it is also about families and sacrifice, and we see some similar themes with with power and class issues, and what we pass on to our children, whether we mean to or not. You introduce us to to two women, uh, Jasmine and Rebecca, who at first don't seem very much alike. Rebecca is a, you know, a high high class, high power. Publishing executive and Jasmine, among other things, is is working at a strip club. So at first they don't seem to have much in common, um, but then they are, in fact, united. And we learned this quite early on um, over the the love of of their daughter. And I do mean their daughter because it turns out it's the biological daughter of one of the women and the adopted daughter of the other. I'd love to hear about the seeds of
1: this book. What parts came to you first? What inspired you to write this story? The Leftover Woman is about Jasmine, um, uh, who's as a young woman in China gives birth to a baby and is told that that baby died and then finds out a couple of years later that actually her daughter had not died but had been given away for adoption by her husband. Uh, another casualty of China's controversial one-child policy that made many people want to um, have a son instead of a daughter. And so that girl had been given up. And when the novel opens, Jasmine has followed her daughter to New York City to try to figure out what happened to her. And we find out, indeed, very soon that that same child has been adopted by Rebecca the wealthy um, publishing executive, who also desperately, desperately loves her adopted Chinese daughter. And I wrote this story because from, I I think the emotional core of it is that, you know, I can sum it up in one line. And that is that it is hard to be a woman. (laughs) You know, it's hard for all of us, right? All of us in Every environment, you know, we are, there's so many aspects of being a woman that are difficult. I mean, wonderful too, right? But the difficult aspects that you are expected to fulfill so many roles, you are judged um, sometimes way more harshly than, you know, you might be if you were a man. I remember when I my kids were young and we flew um, to the U.S. with the baby and my husband changed the diaper on the um when we were on the airplane and oh my god like if you heard the stewardesses it was like you know he performed heart surgery you know and I was like hey me <laughs> like I, I changed the diaper too like nobody like oohed and odd when I changed the diaper. Um so you know there's a there are a lot of ways in which women are really judged and that it's hard especially to be successful and ambitious and to balance those needs of um, having a career and being a good mom for your kids so these are all things that I know intimately but I think for me in particular as a Chinese woman growing up in a pretty old fashioned family you know I was really taught to um, you know not Speak Basically, like, don't speak. Don't look people in the eyes. Don't disagree. You know, make dumplings and sweep the floor. And, you know, you um, to be obedient and to listen and not to lead. So all of those things were um, things that were really difficult for me growing up. And I think that that is also a big part of what's in this story of what it means to be so disadvantaged and to have people look at you in a way that's so different from how you see yourself and how somebody looks and sounds and seems on the outside might be very, very different from who they are on the inside.
0: That's incredibly true. Um, back to your husband in the diaper for one moment. <laughs> I um I had a baby when I was in graduate school. My husband and I were both in graduate school. And you know how it is. You're just, you hold this and I'll go to class. I'll hold that. You just, and we were both scheduled at the same time for one class. And so I remember when I brought the baby to class, it was just like, you know, you come (laughs) back when you can take this work seriously. When my husband brought the baby to class- the baby sat on the professor's shoulder. They passed oh. the baby around. Oh. He got these pats on the back and like, "What a great role model you are. Look at oh. you doing it all." And I just wanted to punch him. I was so mad. <laughs> you know, and so you're absolutely right about just it is hard to be a woman. And then of course, layered on top of this what you what you mentioned so well is that um you really write these silences. This the silences in this in these families so many of your families in all of your books, but also in this one, the relationships have in them secrets and silence. Even when they're part of a family, the characters in your books can be lonely. Um, even when they're in a marriage, they can look at one another and feel like they're they're strangers. I, I find the things you say are beautiful and also what's happening in the white parts between the words um, I just think there's a lot of secrets between the characters in your books. And I think we all find resonance there.
1: Oh, I think that's a really, really beautiful um, thing to say. I love that. And it's something indeed close to my heart because I did start as a poet. And I think that one of the things about poetry is that poetry is about saying the things that we cannot say with words. And uh, indeed, a lot of what you get from a book is – you know, are the things that cannot be spoken, right? It's the things that you feel, but you can't actually fully articulate. And then in another sense, my characters have a lot of secrets, um, you know, from each other, sometimes even from themselves, where they don't realize that this is how they truly feel about someone or something uh, or about themselves. And those are the things that propel the book forward.
0: I'm wondering if if some of that silence also comes from your first generation immigrant background. So in my family it's it's a generation or two back, but like when my grandmother was born in this country to Italian immigrants, they encouraged her not to speak Italian in her home. They wanted her to be American. And what that meant was they were going to silence themselves. They were going to sacrifice in some ways a shared language to make sure that their daughter grew up in this country and as was American. It was a gift to her, but also such a um, such a sacrifice because it meant that they didn't connect in the ways they might have. They didn't speak this shared language. I surely your keen attention to the silences in your characters. I mean, probably from your own experience in this country. Yeah.
1: I, I think what you said was so absolutely um, insightful and in- absolutely true that it is, um, you know, when I was a kid, I, my parents did not want me to go to Chinese school or anything like that because... They were like, if you learn English, we will be so happy. Like, you need to be American. You need to leave this behind. You need to adopt your new language. Um, And I understand, you know, it was like they didn't feel like they had the luxury of hanging on to our old culture or our old language. And I think because I did grow up bilingual um, and now trilingual with Dutch on top of it. I I see language in a different way because I can hop from language to language. And I see that, for example, my mother, who never learned to speak English, comes across very, in a very, very simple, limited way in English, just the way the mother does in Searching for Sylvie Lee. You know, when we see mom in Searching for Sylvie Lee from her own daughter, Amy's eyes, Ma seems like a very simple woman because Amy doesn't really speak Chinese, but then when we enter into ma's own chapter where ma is thinking in chinese in her interior monologue we realize oh my gosh this person is so much deeper and richer and smarter and more passionate than we could ever have imagined in english and i think that that's something that we can apply to everyone who you know is not a native speaker of our language and in the leftover women you know i am playing with the same thing Only maybe I've taken it even a step further because when we are in Jasmine's point of view, she is actually thinking in Chinese the whole time. And when we get a glimpse of her later on in the book in English, you think, oh, my gosh, she her English is not great. I mean, she is so much more limited and comes across so differently Um, in her external, you know, way of being than who she is internally.
0: Yeah, you are great at creating distance between characters just based on that language. You absolutely did it in Searching for Sylvie Lee when um, Sylvie, who was raised in the Netherlands, her thoughts, I mean, I don't speak Dutch, but I, I feel like they come out Dutch and then you've translated them to English for me. So they seem sort of direct and Oh for sure. Could even come off as 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 rude, you know, kind of abrupt, just because the style of language is different. And then here in the leftover woman, when I'm in Jasmine's head, as you said, she's thinking in Chinese, which you've you've translated to English for me, but I'm in Jasmine's head and her relationships are complicated and her thoughts are complex. And the situation is huge and big, and the moments they they the, in her inside her head, she uh, contains multitudes. But then, when I see Jasmine through an English, um, a, a white woman in this case, through through Rebecca, the way I'm perceiving her through that character is Jasmine seems stilted and halting, and she's dropping the article in a sentence and. The way I perceive her through the eyes of a character, even though I was just in Jasmine's head the page before, there is such distance between these two women who both love the same little girl, but are clearly throughout the book, uh, strangers to one another. And the way that you use language to do that is really masterful.
1: Well, thank you. And I think indeed that that's one of the points of the book is that, you know, the book is, of course, a propulsive page-turning thriller and a love story, which I love. But I mean, you're touching upon the deeper themes that I really hoped readers would also pick up on in the book, which is that it's so much about women and ambition and immigration and class and how we perceive each other and how women are seen and how the ways in which women are seen can be very different from the ways we might want to be seen. I think the other thing is that I really do love both Rebecca and Jasmine um, as characters. And so they're both flawed. They both make really, really big mistakes. But ultimately, um, they both really love their child, their daughter, and you know, want the best for her um, and would do anything to keep her in their lives. Yeah, and
0: they're both up against forces that are bigger than they are, right? Jasmine cannot solve the problem of the one child China rule that makes a man want a son instead of a daughter and thus gives his her, I mean, common husband, they weren't married yet, but gives her child away, right? Jasmine is unable to fix the problems that she's up against. And then, of course, when she's in America, penniless, trying to pay back the people who brought her here in pursuit of her child, she cannot do anything about the the classism that she's up against. Similarly, Rebecca is a she's a white parent to an adopted Chinese child. And it's Fifi's birthday party, and Fifi's pointing out her mother. And uh, one of her classmates says, well, she can't be your mom. That's a white lady. And there are a number of times when Rebecca, because she's white and her child is Chinese, perceives a real distance where people assume that she's not the parent. That happens early on in the grocery store. That's alive in their family. And so Rebecca sees um, the effortlessness of her daughter's nanny, who is Chinese, and and is, is envious of that, is envious of the way that that others can relate to her child in ways that she, she, she loves her child deeply, but she doesn't speak Chinese. Um, and there are these distances. I think both, both Jasmine and Rebecca are characters who I can see, Oh, You should get the child or you should get the child. But I can see both of their sides. You do a really nice
1: job of helping us to see there are many ways to love. It was actually, that was one of the things that made the book so much fun to write, but also really difficult because I did not want it to be a book that said this child belongs to the biological mother or belongs to the adoptive mother. Because every situation is specific and every situation is different. And like you brought up about Rebecca, who is white and who adopted um, a Chinese daughter, you know, I did not want the book to say that that was a bad thing because, you know, it is a challenge. It is something that I think you need to be aware of and that you need to address and try to kind of just as we all have challenges as parents, right? Of our own biological or non biological children, we are all trying to fulfill their needs and we're all trying to prepare them for the world and to make them happy with themselves and with their identity and who they are as best we can. And that, you know, you have to know there are extra challenges in an interracial adoption that can be met.
0: Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called know how long this took you to write, but I mean, in the past few years in our news cycles, we have seen hate crimes against Asian Americans in the news. We've seen political discussions um, on the right, especially that seem to encourage discrimination against immigrants to our country. And we've also seen the refusal to teach the history of race in our schools. I mean, I know The Leftover Woman is a work of fiction, but the world in your book is eerily familiar. <laughs> because it is the one I'm living in. And so I wondered if you ever felt uncomfortable or even surprised by how often this fiction was was taking a turn into, oh, look, what I wrote just happened in the news.
1: Yeah, I mean, I am well aware of that. I do, I want that to happen. You know, I think that books are kind of a very powerful, I think books are incredible because books are not only a tremendous source of pleasure and escape, but they are, I think, the most our most profound way of putting ourselves into someone else's shoes, right? It's kind of the only way you can live someone else's life, regardless of gender, color, size, you know, culture. When you're in a book, you are in that character's head from the inside out. And my hope in writing um, The Leftover Woman was that people reading it would kind of have a great story, right? You know, great, twisty, fun to read story about what happens, how this is going to work out, um, what's actually happening, what are the clues that we don't know about, but that they would also maybe come away with some kind of knowledge of each other.
0: What other kinds of research did you do for this book to capture that point of view?
1: So I did a lot of interviews, but what I also did in addressing the fact that I am not white, while I wrote one of the, you know, points of view, one of the narrators is white, Rebecca, Um, What I did was I put her in a more distant point of view. So I write her from a third-person point of view, from he, she, it, while Jasmine is really an I's voice, is a first person. So you're kind of closer and more intimate to her. And um, Rebecca, we are following her very closely, but we are still following her from the outside and not from the inside. Yeah,
0: I I did notice that. And it's funny that kind of combination of points of view if you had asked me before I read a few books like that I would have said you can't do first person and third that will never work but it absolutely does because the degree to which you trust are inside of someone's head is different you're getting a a number of different perspectives and you come to understand just you understand characters from different viewpoints it absolutely um it works really well it works really well
1: yeah And it's also a great way um, to kind of bring forward a mystery because each character only knows what they know. And so as a writer, you know, I, I always say for the people who are writing, there are two timelines in every book. One timeline is the actual sequence of events. It's like from beginning to end, this happened, that happened, that happened, that happened, that happened. But the second timeline is actually much more important. And that second timeline is the order in which those events are revealed to the reader. And the author has to be very careful in revealing information at the right time um, to the reader so that you don't get a huge info dump where we don't even care and we don't know who they are, number one. But also so that the reader has questions like, oh, who? wait, what? where did that come from? Where's she from? What happened there? Um, And so that you can have those questions to build up a really pleasurable read and then to answer them piece by piece just at the right moment. And then, you know, clues and things can of course be very easily put into that narrative, especially when you have two narrators who neither of which have the entire story.
0: Yeah. And as a reader, I find myself picking sides sometimes because I'll be in Jasmine's head and I'll be like, "Oh, no, she's right." And then I'll be in Rebecca's point of view and I'm like, "Oh, no, she's got a good point." And then I might there's a husband who floats around in the story as well, Brandon, and depending on who I'm whose eyes I'm seeing him through, I trust him more or less as well. So you you do create some good tension there. That actually makes me wonder. You said you were a physics major. For your undergrad, maybe there was an obvious moment for you, but do you ever use your physics and your scientific, I don't know, like if this then... hypotheses. I I took one physics class and I'm clearly not demonstrating Um, anything. There was an M and there was some, oh God, Anne-Marie, I've got nothing. Y equals M X plus B is like algebra two. Uh, Did you ever find your scientific training to be useful for plotting a novel or, or really anything like that?
1: I think that's a great question, and yes, absolutely. I mean, not that I use specific physics knowledge. I do have an orderly mind in some ways, and I definitely think about the structure of my books a lot. The more I write, the more I think about the structure, and the kind of the trickier and more complex my novel structures become. So The Leftover Woman is actually by far the most complex in terms of timeline and puzzle pieces of all of my books. Can we pivot? I want to ask you one other thing. It's it's, it's backing up
0: from this for a moment. You popped up in my news feed earlier this year because one of your books, and maybe it was your debut, Girl in Translation, was on a list of books considered to be banned. And I have read all your books. And other than maybe some teenagers kissing one time and some other people dancing and maybe a little fumbling in the dark. Like, (laughs) I could not think of a reason why those novels would, why would they be on that list? Were you surprised to even find
1: yourself in that news story? I was completely shocked. And especially because, like you said, I am a real pg-13 writer i mean for better or for the worse you know you can't help your voice you can't help your level of violence or sex you know it's like i'd probably sell a lot more copies if i could amp it up but i i'm fade to black i mean there's romance there's kissing there's love but there's there are no like body parts you know in my um in my books or sex scenes or anything like that and indeed, Girl in Translation um, is my debut novel, which is taught in schools all around the world. and is a fantastic book. So good. Thank you. Thank you. It's considered a modern classic and it is one of the books being challenged across the country. Um, and so I did fly to Pennsylvania to defend it in person because there is no material in the book. That is controversial in any sense. And I think that, you know, speaks to perhaps a deeper reason for wanting to take certain types of voices or certain types of stories about diverse people, about people with different sexual identity, uh, just to think about it just seems like, you know, it's not just about taking out books that have material that's too explicit for kids, because there's really nothing in my books that is too explicit. And my books are, of course, they're all adult books. I'm not a YA writer. I'm not a children's writer. But my books are sometimes taught in high schools in the higher grades, you know, just as, you know, Shakespeare is taught. And other adult books uh, filled with other issues are also taught to young adults. No, I mean, I was
0: thinking of, again, I've read them all, but Girl in Translation was the one that made me think in terms of skirts. One of my favorite things you do is uh, Ma and, oh gosh, Kimberly? Kimberly, Kimberly. Yeah, Ma and Kimberly work in this clothing factory, and they're paid like a penny, right? A penny per piece. And I know that you experienced this as a child, but that meant something that cost a dollar. They had to have finished 100 skirts or 100 pieces of clothing. So they were really deciding, do we have that dollar to spend? And that book really made me think so much about the transactional nature of what things are worth and what work is valued and what what work is... I, I think that would be a tremendous book to teach young children to think about uh, walking in other people's shoes and not realizing the degree to which what it means to have an apartment with no heat. I, I didn't have your same apartment, but I absolutely had the apartment with the roaches, the mice and the no heat where we opened the oven to absolutely had that for our first apartment. And I didn't live in Brooklyn. I lived, I lived in South Carolina and that is the only thing that saved us. But we had, I, we, we left the the oven open to stay warm. So when you were talking about that, I remember what that felt like and to have it happen in Brooklyn Oh my gosh! You guys must have been freezing. So I don't understand why anyone would ever ban such a book with so much universal truth about a culture that that many people maybe have not even thought about before.
1: Well, Anne Marie, I love hearing that because it's you know it's one of the things in my life that I know no matter where I go to give the talk. You know, to give a talk, even very exclusive, um, expensive places, someone will come up to me and whisper, you know, actually, that was my story, too. But please don't tell anyone. And that, you know, you experienced it. You know, it's just it's just so true. You know, it's the kind of life that so many people have experienced, but don't talk about, you know, because it seems like a well, other people couldn't relate or they'll think I'm strange or whatever. Um, but yet really, you know, there's no, like, no one has an easy life. <laughs> I think that's what I'm trying to say. No matter our race, our gender, our, you know, life is just not easy, but it's a part of the work of authors and of books to kind of elucidate the specific ways in which they might be challenging and to maybe smooth the way by understanding each other a little bit better.
0: Sure. And fostering that empathy. You have me empathizing for a wealthy woman in New York City who is ostensibly very successful, but you have me empathizing for the struggle beneath the surface that I hadn't seen. You have me empathizing with a bartender uh, at a nightclub who's making drinks wrong and not doing a good job. But you even have me empathizing with the the woman who owns that club, who is in some ways selling women to men. But one of the things you do so well is... Make me as a reader step back and then step close and then step back again and really walk in the shoes of, in this case, many of these women in the book who are out there struggling, doing their best day to day, which is ultimately what any woman who's going to pick up this book um, is also doing. And I'm real grateful just to know that you're out there, Jean Kwok
1: anne I'm so grateful that there are readers like you out there. Because, you know, as writers, sometimes we're sitting there, we get really depressed, let me tell you. you we're know, <laughs> like a depressed bunch of writers. You sit there and you're like, oh my God, I'm so bad. This is so bad. The book is so bad. My characters are so bad. Nobody's going to want to read this. If they read it, they're going to hate it. And um, it's so special to be able to talk to someone who has read it and actually picked up from it, the things that you hoped people would pick up. And that's a, a beautiful feeling that somebody has seen, has seen themselves in the book, has seen the things that you were trying to say in the book. Then you feel so connected and like you did something that was worthwhile.
0: No, you absolutely did. I'm so grateful for it. We always close with a little lightning round. It has nothing to do with the books kind of, and it's just some yes or no, this or that questions. And we'll uh, we'll, we'll do a sneak peek of the author behind the author um can we do that sure i'm curious i'm scared (laughs) oh no there's nothing scary all right a few multiple choices to warm up coffee or tea tea mountains or beach beach dogs or cats
1: cats but i do love dogs too
0: venice or amsterdam venice foxtrot or mambo mambo stroop waffle or pot roast pot roast (laughs) what are you worse at cooking or cleaning
1: Cooking <laughs> this really can be. I, I have the gift. I have the gift of being able to make something charred and black on the outside and completely raw on the inside. That's hard to do, my friend. I'm
0: thinking of the grandmother in Sylvie Lee, who's like, "How could you burn it? It was just rice and water." <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, okay. What would you rather drink? Would you rather drink a zombie, which is what Jasmine makes in The Leftover Woman, or caterpillar soup, which is what Charlie is made to drink in Mambo in Chinatown?
1: I drink the zombie because I have had <laughs> caterpillar soup. I was fed all of that type of medicine um, that's in Mambo in Chinatown. And let me tell you, it was not fun. Oh. So, Yes. <laughs>
0: Oh, are you an early bird or a night owl? Night owl. Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band aids are? Both. Yeah, you kind of need to be both, right? Mm. This is a fill in the blank. It's if I wasn't working as a writer, I would be a professional ballroom dancer. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is one of my favorite parts. A mambo in Chinatown. For folks who hasn't haven't read it, is what two books ago for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I loved learning to dance with the character in your book. And you did actually, you worked as a ballroom dancer instructor, yes?
1: I did. I worked as a professional ballroom dancer in between my degrees at Harvard and Columbia. And indeed, Mambo in Chinatown is about a young woman who is a dishwasher in a restaurant in Chinatown um, who winds up becoming a professional barroom dancer and her little sister gets sick. and in order to uh, save her little sister, she has to win a dance competition with her hot partner. Exactly. It's like
0: part, it's part dirty dancing and part. There's a little element of some footloose in there. It was just it was I love that book. Okay, last two. What's your favorite ice cream? Butter pecan. And last one. if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? I'd be dancing. Wonderful. I actually found, it was probably a promotional video from when you guys did that, but I found a video of you dancing on YouTube. I'll I'll link to it because it made me so happy that it's out there.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for an incredible interview, Anne-Marie. Well, thank you, Jean.
0: In your first novel, one of the characters gets this advice, quote, "'You may need to change your dreams.'" And I believe it was meant there as like an admonition or a caution, but I'm viewing it today as a kind of blessing. Thank you, Jean Kwok, for changing your dreams. Thank you for moving from physics to writing, because we are
1: all the better for it. Thank you so much for having me, Anne-Marie.
0: Folks, Jean Kwok's latest novel is The Leftover Woman. It is available now wherever books are sold. I urge you to read it and then go back and read her others. They're all fantastic. We're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloia, producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.